Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films and film theory made for film lovers by film lovers. And we talk about a different film each week. We give a bit of a review and then we talk about some of the themes and ideas that that film throws up. And at the moment we're going through director by director. Season 3 is a new director each month. And our director at the moment is Baz Luhrmann. Uh, before we continue with that, though, we like to start each show in the same way with recommendations for what else we've been watching. So, Rob, what have you been enjoying this week? Well, I've been tucking into various little odd films that are popping up on Netflix. We're a recent convert to Netflix. <coughs> We're a recent convert to Netflix. And so I'm catching up on all these little films that I missed either through having uh, my daughter, so I missed a y- good year of releases, but also just things that never quite got over the bar to be gone and seen. And so this week I caught up with the 2013 release, R.I.P.D. R.I.P.D. is a Ryan Reynolds and Jeff Bridges film about a dead cop who gets recruited into the R.I.P.D., the Rest in Peace Department, um, a team of angelic, I suppose, angelic afterlife cops who policed the world. It's, I think the phrase used would be a critical and commercial flop when it was released. It, it was very much, didn't, it didn't even make back its production budget. That being said, I had a lot of fun with it. I mean, I think that it has problems. Some of the CGI is not great. And I think that you can clearly watch a film and think almost all the characters in this are in different films. Jeff Bridges is certainly in his own film, as is uh, Kevin Bacon, as as the ex-partner of Ryan Reynolds. They're all sort of, I mean, sort of acting at different levels, pulling different kind of styles together. And it never quite gels as a whole as a film. But it was fun. I think Ryan Reynolds has got a lot of charisma. I think as his rise has shown, as has Jeff Bridges, um, got a lot of charisma. And between the two of them sparring and uh, kind of coming against each other, sort of the clash of those two cultures, that's a lot of fun. But yeah, it, it is it is a, a popcorn movie. It is a, you know, let's get a few beers and watch a silly movie rather than anything, anything more than that. What about you, Sam? Right. Well, coincidentally, it's also a Ryan Reynolds film this week for me. And... For the first time in many, many months, um, I've actually been to the cinema <gasps> for the second time since my son's birth. My wife and I went out for the evening. Um, the other time was with other people, so this is our first real date. So, muck the card, seven months and a day. Well done, sir. Well yeah. done. <laughs> um, so, we went to see the latest Ryan Reynolds film, and that's Deadpool 2. And I really enjoyed the first one. How did, did you see the first one, Rob? Yep, I saw the first one, and I very much enjoyed it. It was a, a nice kind of change of pace. Mm. I think at that point, I, I was approaching a little bit of superior fatigue. Yes. Um, and I very much enjoyed the run of the few superior films we've had since then, Ant-Man, that, Thor, Ragnarok, that kind of took it in a new direction. Mm. So yes, yes. I, I enjoyed it, certainly. Yeah, and this this carries on in the same direction, same vein. It's very self-referential. It, and I will not spoil any of it, but there is a particular trope of comic book movies that it it's, has become quite tired, and it nicely lampoons that. And it has brilliant references to other films, uh, not just other Marvel films. Uh, 
DC films as well. There's a running joke about the DC universe and, and talking about Batman. And he, I mean, there's there's this bizarre scene parodying Basic Instinct. Um, it's it's delightfully insane this film. Um, and it it's I think I knew this was going to be a brilliant film from the there's an opening sequence with the the best use of Dolly Parton '95 you can imagine. Um, so yes, it was is very enjoyable, and it's certainly. As you said, superhero movies appear to have gone. Certainly, Marvel films have gone in a different direction recently, and it continues that. And long may that continue. I agree. Very brilliant. Well, this week, guys, as Sam mentions, we are concluding our Baz Luhrmann run, our four weeks looking at his movies. We are concluding it with his most recent film, The Great Gatsby. I will tell you God's truth. God's truth about myself. I am the son of some very wealthy people. Sadly, they're all dead now. I live in all the capitals of Europe, collecting jewels, hunting big game, painting a little. And came the war, old sport. Every allied government gave me a decoration. Major Jay Gatsby for Valor Extraordinary. That's right. Gatsby is a modern production, but set in the correct period of the 1925 movie, novel from F. Scott Fitzgerald. It tells the story of Gatsby, but told through the view of his neighbour. And it's about the uh, sort of opulent life that Gatsby leads, the interpersonal relationships that develop between Gatsby and his neighbour and his neighbour's cousin, and a neighbour's cousin's husband, and a neighbour's cousin's husband's mistress and all the kind of uh, sort of machinations of of the super rich that uh, exist in this world it is very much a Baz Luhrmann production um, as we talked about last week he has this flair for the epic and we didn't talk about it much when we talked, we talked about Moulin Rouge but it has that same kind of ethereal quality so that same kind of unreality that uh, Moulin Rouge presented and the idea of this bubble that exists outside of almost everything else but it is it is very much in that kind of that 20 style mixed in with the, the Baz Luhrmann flair for visuals now Sam I must confess I've never read the book and I don't know if you have I, I'm presuming with all your English degrees and, and, and doctorates you've probably read the book at some point but I must say I haven't so for you whether you've read the book or not how did this sit right um at this point I start to think that my career has just been one long homage to Baz Luhrmann because we did uh, Romeo and Juliet and I taught that for a couple of years and then we did Australia and I've worked a lot on post-colonial ideas and things to do with the stolen generations and now we come to The Great Gatsby and I not only have read this book but I teach it at a level um so yes I do know this book quite well um, just a little bit yeah, yeah yes, just a little, little few bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the thing is with this film um, and it's something that I got to about I mean I, I've seen this film a couple of times but on, on re-watching it for this and I got to this about sort of five six minutes in 
it started to really annoy me the things they changed. Right. And it, and I I had to stop myself and think, look, just stop looking at this as an imperfect translation of the novel and just watch this as a film. Mm-hmm. I mean, some, some of the characters are different. Tom Buchanan's a very different character in the novel and Daisy's a very different character in the novel. Gatsby's a very different character in the novel, but that shouldn't really matter. And it doesn't really matter because one of the great things about Baz Luhrmann, I think we've seen it as this month has unfolded, is that he can capture essences and atmospheres. And I don't think he was particularly successful at times in Australia, but he certainly captured atmospheres in that film. And he did that with Romeo and Juliet. I think that's his only we said at the time. I think that's one of the best productions of that play in existence and this this thing with this this film of Gatsby that yeah there are many many things that are different about the book but you can see why he's made all those changes and that doesn't really matter because what he's done is brought it to life brilliantly mm-hmm. excellent Excellent. I see, I think I had a slightly different reaction to you. Now I must say I haven't I haven't read the book, so I can't compare it to that. But this film just didn't click with me, um, and I thought a lot about it since I watched it as, as to why it didn't click with me. And I think that's a couple of things. One of which is I don't, as as kind of film theory sacred as this is, I don't overly rate Leonardo as an actor. He, I think he's very good in certain things. And I think when he's good, he's very good. You know, by the point of things like Inception or Wolf of Wall Street um, or even uh, Romeo and Juliet, we talked about Logic. But I think when he, when he doesn't land it, he can come off really flat. And this, to me, was one where I felt he was flat. He didn't really kind of tie it together. And I never really bought him as, you know, I bought him as, as the shaken, you know, Jay Gatz towards the end who, who's he's come in his car always nervous to meet this girl but I never bought him as this kind of you know opulent master of it all at the start of the film and I think that whilst the visuals won me over at times it strayed too close to the kind of maniac energy that characterised things like Milan Rouge which I'm also not a massive fan of and that kind of full-on turned up to 11 energy that the film had just somehow kind of, it kept me at arm's length from connecting to it. Um, it just felt somehow that it just it tr- tried to have its cake and eat it. We talked in the past you know, about the, the idea of, of, of Brechtian productions and method productions and that, kind of the balance of those two things. And this kind of somehow wanted to use some of the techniques of Brecht that we discussed elsewhere. We discussed them in the um, Romeo and Juliet episode, the kind of the separation um, and the idea that we're kind of, particularly with Romeo and Juliet, that we're looking at almost like archetypes of characters rather than characters. Whereas this is much more of a character study, but he's still using those techniques. And it just, it just somehow didn't come together as a whole for me in a kind of emotional impact way. But I will say, I think that the visuals on this are top work. This to me felt like what... Marie Antoinette was trying to be um, a different aesthetic in terms of its colour, but that the party scene, um, you get, you get one really big party scene um, at uh, Gatsby's mansion, 
and it is it is everything you think the rich and famous parties are going to be it's everything you think these aristocratic decadent opulent parties are going to be and it embraces all of that and i thought the visuals of that the music i thought the, the, the interplay of modern music and the old school visuals and the slightly cranked up camera really worked for that kind of visual display and it really reminded me of things like the buster berkeley musicals um from classical hollywood and that kind of thing um but it just the visuals of it were outstanding but i just think it didn't quite come together um, I think Toby Maguire was a weird choice for that casting. Um, and I don't think he, he his every man quality that he can bring kind of felt a little bit out of place. A lot of this stuff, but yeah, it, it was it was fine. But it just didn't it didn't grab me in the way that other films of his have. See, I think there might be a clue in what you're saying there because that's what this this book this film this whole story is about it's about someone not fitting in and mm. what you've just said i mean we we agreed on the visuals in this are amazing and i would I agree with you i don't I, i'm not a huge fan of of dicaprio here but i don't think that matters because i think this is about feeling displaced and feeling dislocated and when I mean, Nick starts the film as this sort of airbrush figure and is almost cartoon-like, the way that you, mm. you see his face when he's looking up at, when, he, when he first gets to Wall Street. And then by the end, he's haggard and an alcoholic and stubbly and his hair's unkempt. And there's, there's something about this film that that really engages with this idea about being being dis- dislocated and that's what the character of Nick is and that's what you get in the book and all all of these different characters I mean by the way they're all absolutely horrible everyone in mm. this book and it, it lemons pretty much shown you on screen it's a fairly faithful portrayal in in that respect that every single character has some entirely irredeemable quality about them but that that's what this this film does it presents you with this beautiful landscape this beautiful the the parties the the visuals Mm. the world of the rich and famous and then it shows you several people nick and gatsby and daisy who for very different reasons are completely shut out from that world so i get what you're saying about it not quite fitting but i think that's something and i don't know whether he's done that deliberately i may be giving him too much credit here but there is something <laughs> i i feel that this film is is saying exactly what the book is trying to say i can see that it was notable to me thinking along those lines of dislocation and separation that the film takes place in several locations and this may sound strange we don't really see much travel between the two or the three or the four now we do mm. have this kind of these ideas of, of, of these mountains of ash the towers of ash that sort of lie between new york and east and west egg but even then, there isn't a connection. Like you, you, they're almost like completely separate sound stages. You know, we leave, we leave West Egg, and suddenly we're in this wasteland, and suddenly we're in New York. And the film, you know, we, we often 
if you watch any kind of any film these days, there'll be a classic shot of which, you know, someone's traveling somewhere and there's a close up of the um, car or that, and it'll pull back and you get a nice shot of, you know, a nice shot of the uh, Golden Great Bridge or a nice shot of them crossing something. And you can get that kind of that movement shot. Whereas this, we've got none of that and everything exists in its isolation, even even the uh, the east and west egg are separated by this this this, this sort of lake, this sea, and they're, they're separate. And even the next door between Nick and Gatsby, like you, there's a clear fence, and you can see peaks on either side. But it's clearly there's a separation in those worlds. And you get to New York, and you've got Wall Street, you've got the barber shop, you've got the um, the flat in which um, they're having their parties and affairs. And it, it, it's kind of separation of these places, and it ends up with these these, these things feeling almost more kind of presentational rather than realistic we are given sound stages on which they perform we are given you know we talked about last week with australia the idea that we're looking at a sound stage and a presentation and i really felt it in the um the scenes um at the uh, gas station like that was a a set clearly but it, it was lit like it was a sound stage you know it didn't have any light and dark it didn't have any shade it was just lit in, in, in all its form you know that whilst I, I think the visuals are amazing in this he isn't doing that kind of interesting by which I mean different and complicated lighting setups it isn't you know light and dark it is bombastic and bright and over the top you know there's that you know, the famous shot you see everywhere of, of Gatsby toasting a glass as the fireworks go off behind him and that's the film um and I like that about it I'd say but I think the you say that there's this dislocation, this disconnection between these people that they're trying desperately to make. You know, almost everyone in this film is trying to make a connection. Nick's trying to connect Gatsby, Gatsby's trying to connect with Daisy. Daisy and her husband are clearly trying some way to kind of, or her husband to make it work despite their infidelities. Um, and it's and, and Jordan, the golfer, trying to connect with Nick. But the separation of their world, the literal separation of their world, means they just can't. They, you know, they're always going to retreat back to their little havens and their little places, separate from each other. And there isn't any kind of continuous flow of sense of place between these two regions. I will say, I mean, one thing there, and there's some something very flat in the way that certain things are presented and you've said the sort of soundstage way in which the gas stage are presented and I would say that Nick's character right at the start that the the colour the the way that he looks at the other camera it's very there's very little shadow on his face that that insistence on facade is something that is important to this and this leads me into something that I was a little bit disappointed in that the, and this is me sort of unfortunately going back to complaints slightly about adaptation from the book but something that really works in the book is that you have a little coda at the end mm. of the, the entirety of the only nine chapters in the book the whole of the ninth chapter is after Gatsby's death and that little coda has his father coming to visit and his father is Henry Gatz because he was James Gatz before he was Jay Gatsby. So you you see Henry Gatz coming to visit, and you have Henry Gatz struggling to understand what happened to Jimmy, as as he calls him, and you get this completely different side to Gatsby mm. and you can see suddenly that the way that everything behind this facade has just been revealed. Mm. And that was something that I wanted to see 
it would have been nice to see a little bit of in the film, a little bit of sort of pulling away to show you that facade, to show you the way that, I mean, the these lives of the rich and famous are, there, there is something empty about them. There is something facade-like about them. Uh, yeah, I think also there's, there's something interesting watching this film with, with the, the, the hindsight of history on our side. You know, the film was written... Um, sort of nearer the time um, and we're, we're looking at it in 2018 we're looking back through you know the lenses of the great depression and the wall street crash and all these sort of things and almost the and, and the, the world of austerity we live in now post you know the, the economic recession that we've, we've just lived through and there is something i don't know weirdly sick about watching this kind of level of opulence and decadence from people mm. and it isn't i suppose in the way that you know you think about the 80s particularly you know, the greed is good and that kind of, you know, self-serving, you know, collection of money and, and the sort of adulation of the rich and the powerful. This somehow it's strange, but like I think the day we, days we live in now, we don't we don't celebrate the rich in that same way. Um, and I think certainly there's certainly a, an Americanism to this kind of celebration of the rich and the the achievement of the American dream that we haven't got over here in Britain. You know, it's notable and often. I read an essay about this. I can actually talk about this in Italy. Um, so if you look at something like, just an example, sort of the uh, the canaries of, of of TV soaps. And this is, bear with me, guys. This is, this is mm. a diversion. But over in the UK, we have a few TV soaps. And overwhelmingly, they are focused on the working class. The big ones being you know, EastEnders, Coronation Street. They, they are focused on the working class of Britain. Go to Australia, yeah. overwhelmingly middle class. Things like Home and Away, Neighbours. These are... Middle class sitcom, middle class soaps. Good America, it's bold and beautiful. It's Dallas. It's you know, it's it's that kind of thing. They have America has this the adulation of the rich that comes with their kind of the idea of the American dream, the self made man, that um, that doesn't exist outside of that country. And we, as cultures, idolize different things. And there are long historical reasons as to why we idolize those different things. Um, the idea of what is a true Brit tends to be a working class person. The Australian. Um, sort of reaching for the middle class out of obviously their kind of post-colonial, post-convict state and the American dream of the America. And so that this film films very American in that kind of ideal idolization of the rich and, and the idea that rich equals powerful um, and the idea that rich, you know, Jay Gatsby himself has this idea that Daisy's only going to love him if he's rich and can show it. Um, and I think that that's a, a very... American view on the world, and I don't mean that in a harsh way towards America. It's a brilliant place, but I think that there is something about the American culture that does idolise this, this, the self-made man, the businessman, the, the, the rich and the rich and powerful, rather than just the powerful. That that's something that well, the the, the lines in the film that are basically lifted from the book, the exchange between Buchanan and Gatsby, and that's always struck me that. When Gatsby says, we're just the same, we've got the same amount of money, therefore we must be the same, and Buchanan says, oh no, we're not the same, we're different. It's always struck me that that hasn't quite worked. There's been something a bit off about that, because you're right, That that's a, in a hugely American narrative, that is a very British attitude. Mm. That attitude of, yes, you have got the same amount of money as me, but we are fundamentally different. We are racially different. We that that's something I want to get onto. Um, in this, there's something. I mean, when he says we we're bred a certain way, it's in the blood. Mm. 
there's something that's antithetical to the American dream there. Because what Gatsby is saying is, well, rich is great and everyone's the same if they've got, got the money. And Buchanan is, is, is a rather quote-unquote old-world attitude that says, oh no, we're different. We're different sort of people. You're not as civilised as us. Insert quotation marks. I think I come back to being a very American way, because I think Britain obviously is... I mean, Britain and America is the, sort of the parallels we're drawing in many ways. But Britain has a long history, and some of it incredibly dark. But we aren't a country overly built in the same way America is on slavery. Now, we have huge problems in terms of imperialism and colonialism, but the history of Britain extends well before then. You know, the history system exists before, you know, the, the, the imperial days. So we've got a very rare history. So whether it's right or wrong, we can kind of put the, the bad bits of, of the colonial era into a little box and move on and look at British history as, as, as a, a wider field. Whereas American history starts mostly with, with, with slavery. Mm. You know, that, that is a country that was built on the enslavement of another race. And that's why they are still going through a lot of the problems, I think, that they have in terms of the racial makeup of America. Um, and so over there, like, that, that for more, more than any other country, there's this idea that, like, yes, I'm white, I'm rich, I'm better than the other person. You know, mm. the... the, 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 the um, the character's always going on about he, he, he's you know, talking about interracial marriages and bad thing. He's incredibly racist, very openly and aggressively racist, in a way that you know just you wouldn't see in the, mo- the modern day. You hope so at least. But I think that there is something about that kind of the American, the old American, the, the, the source of Americans' riches is going to be slavery it is going to be the southern plantations the old money of america is going to come from there it isn't going to come from somewhere else Mm. yeah yeah his his racism is is troubling he i mean is it he's a more complex figure in the book but i suppose and that doesn't take away from what you have you have on the page and also on the screen. I was thinking about that. I mean, the, this idea that America is a country, I mean, it would go even further than slavery. I mean, you have sort of enslavement or murder of the native peoples of America on the arrival mm. of the pilgrims in the 17th century. So even before slavery, you've got a country that's built on the obliteration of other people. But I was also thinking in terms of film, like, I mean, lots of American cine-literates will say that The Birth of a Nation is a hugely important film for them. And what's that about? In that's about the Ku Klux Klan, and that's about the way that black people were treated mm. in America. So it, it it's yeah, you're right. There, there's something something hugely important in the American psyche. Yes, and it's partly racial, but it's also it's partly to do with this. It's sort of the flip side of the American dream. It's to do with this idea that you can make yourself into something. 
Yeah, the, the self-made man. So that is the the American dream writ large. Is, is you know, mm. and Gatsby may have self-made himself via you know bootlegging and illegal activities, but he is a self-made man um, in the way that uh, Buchanan is not, um, which I think is very interesting. And I think like this, I think maybe where the film didn't connect with me, if you talk about original, is that I think that there's a very interesting story to be told here about the idea of a self-made man versus the old school money and the butting of those two heads and the idea of this this uh, young woman who has to choose between two lies which are essentially very similar, but in many ways wholly different. Um, and I just think because maybe because of the time the book was written, it didn't, for me, didn't open up that area enough to me. And it was too concerned with its visuals um, than to try mm. and tell that story in a way that felt emotionally resonant rather than just uh, visually resonant. So uh, we need to move on. We could talk about America and race. And, well, I could for hours and hours. But, Rob, do you have recommendations for us? Other things to look at? I do. I do. I've got a couple of recommendations for us. So, my first one, I chose it from a thematic point of view, but it also has a very clear actorly link. Um, and that is the 2002 film Gangs of New York. This film I've recommended previously. It's a film that I, I always want to try and triumph and sort of, uh, sort of bang, the, bang the drum for. It has... The reason we're recommending it is this film, much like Last Week's Australia, uh, Gatsby has a kind of epic feel to it and a visual flair to this kind of... It paints this picture of this world that seems like exists outside of time and space. And Gangs of New York is the same sort of thing. It's set in New York once again, but it has that slightly twisted world. There's a slightly heightened theatrical view of the world. And also it's got Leo in as its main character, which is a... Um, a big leap with this film, but it's just a film that has the same kind of ideas of a visual spectacle to tell a period drama. You know, I, I've in the past lamented the nature of, of BBC period dramas. They don't think they do anything interesting visually. They are all about, you know, the the set dressing and all about the uh, script. And these films that take the, that traditional period piece world and do something interesting with it. And that's kind of why I want to draw that link. My second link is very much an actor link and that actor is elizabeth debicki uh, she played jordan the uh on again off again possible romance possible friend of nick the uh, golfer i just really liked her i thought she was a nice little stand-up character she was a great kind of looking askance at various moments she was kind of like in the, in the story but not part of the central narrative that she kind of existed to comment on and i liked her performance there um and she appeared in one of my favorite films from last year that uh, i don't think sam was doing me on like as much and a lot of people didn't um and that's the film valerian and the city of a thousand planets it's a film once again that i have triumphed previously i've banged the drum for that film previously and she plays the um, and i'll try and pronounce this wrong because i will probably get it wrong she played Emperor Hadan Limi or Limai. Um, she was in it there and I really enjoyed her there and I really enjoyed her in this. So it's a chance to kind of draw those two lines to film together and, and bang the drum for a film that I, I feel needs better attention. What about you, Sam? Actually, uh, suggestions aren't very different because my first one is another... Uh, it's got... Two of the same three um, links to it. It's another Scorsese film. It's another film starring Leonardo DiCaprio. 
And it, okay, in in some ways, it's very different from Gatsby. It's very gritty and uncompromising. And I just thoroughly enjoyed it when I saw it. It's the 2006 film, The Departed. My second connection is an actorly one. We haven't talked very much about Tobey Maguire. Um, and I have to say, I'm not a huge fan of his um, in lots of things he's been in. But he was a small part in the 1997 film The Ice Storm. Now, this is not a great film. <laughs> That's what we like in the recommendations. Films that aren't great. Yes. This is not a, a film to go out and see, necessarily. Um, it's noteworthy because it's an early Ang Lee film. Um, and it's one of a spate of films in the late 1990s, a sort of character-driven TV-esque movies. Um, but it's it's one that, if it comes on the TV, then just settle down to watch it at 10 o'clock on, on a Wednesday evening if you've got nothing better to do. It's, it's a it's a sort of 6 out of 10, certainly eminently watchable film. It's got Kevin Klein and Joe now and then. So it's it's a fairly good cast. And yeah, if you've got nothing better going, going on in your life, then you could do worse than watch, watch The Ice Storm. Excellent. A, a thorough recommendation there, Sam. <laughs> well, guys, that is the conclusion to our Baz Luhrmann series. We're moving on next week to a new director. And uh, this is my personal choice director that I'm bringing to the fold. And that is British director Ben Wheatley. We are picking up with his very first feature um, that he uh, he released. He's very British, so if you haven't seen him, and he isn't a big director in the same way that people like Baz Luhrmann and others we covered have been. Um, we're picking up on his 2009 film, Down Terrace. Till then, guys, you can find us both on Twitter at Pretty Podcast. You can find me at life underscore academic. And you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you guys here back next week.